We will remain standing for the reading of the text this morning of the Word of God, and that is to do honor to Him and to His Word and to His name. Taking the text from Matthew chapter 16, I will begin reading. I'm going to back it up to about verse 13 and begin reading through verse 19 while we'll be focusing on around verses 16 through 19. Now hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for what you have done for us in Christ and what Christ has done, is doing, and will complete here upon the earth in his glorious reign. We're thankful for this kingdom that your word says was even prepared for us. And the reign and the rule of Christ over all things, over all men, over all nations, over all dominions, to whom be glory and honor and power. And we ask that the Spirit of God would attend the preaching of your word now, and pray that you would minister it to our hearts and to our lives, and that it would come forth in application that would be pleasing to you. So we pray you would bless the reading, the preaching, the receiving of your blessed word now, and we pray this in the name of King Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Many of you know last year I had the opportunity to travel over to Europe, but the process was not as simple as merely buying some tickets and getting on a plane and and heading overseas, because I was going to another country of which I was not a citizen. So I had to get a passport. In order to get a passport, I had to exhibit my government certified birth certificate, of which at one point I could not find and had to go back to the place I was born and had to appeal to the state in which they then issued a government certified birth certificate. Then I could apply for my passport. Then I could buy my plane tickets and make my reservations. A passport, as many of you know, is a travel document. It's issued by the country's government to its citizens, and it certifies the identity and the nationality of the primary holder for the purpose mostly for travel. In other words, my birth certificate or my passport certified my national identity. I had to show my passport, not only get on the plane, I had to show it to get into the hotels, I had to show it to rent a car, car. Um, and so I carried it upon my body wherever I went. 
It traveled with me because if I were ever questioned, it could be examined, and then they would know my nationality, my identity, and my business that I had in their country. As we continue our series on the church this morning, I wanted to take the opportunity and the occasion around the baptism and the joining of new members into the membership of Heritage to explain a little more about how that works and what's going on in these rites and these formalities. In the passage before us, Matthew is making three main points between verses 16 through 19. First of all, we see Peter's confession. This is the orthodox doctrine of the faith. This pertains to who Christ is and the work that he came to do. Peter's confession points to the creed of the kingdom, summarized here in Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That was his confession. The second thing that Matthew draws our attention to here is in verse 18, and that's the work of Christ in coming to build His church so powerfully that the powers of darkness and hell will never prevail against the church in what He came to do here upon the earth. The church is the realm of God's kingdom here upon the earth. When we think of the kingdom, we think about His rule, His reign. And that is the purpose for Christ coming here. It is to build His kingdom here upon the earth and to transform this earth with His righteous scepter. And to do this, He had to overcome all the evil forces in the world in which held the world's sway to its power. So Christ came and He had to defeat sin and evil and death and darkness and Satan and all of His minions. So if you ever ask, if you were ever asked, why did Jesus come to this earth? And if you answered, He came to save sinners, you would only be half right. Christ came to establish His righteous kingdom here on earth by saving sinners and overcoming all evil to the glory of God. So don't fall short of that complete answer. Because there's a much glorious benefit and privilege if you can comprehend the holistic view of the purposes of God in Christ. The church that Christ came to build in this realm is His reign. It is His rule. It is His power. He is the last Adam to whom dominion has been given over all of the earth. The church is the kingdom. Seeing the connection between the church and the kingdom is really an important connection. I see a lot of mistakes made when you're not seeing this direct link and this understanding here. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But let me encourage you with the words this morning about the reign of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. Christ says in verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But... 
Our country's falling apart. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But I was watching Fox News this morning. We know Fox is certainly the conservative version. I don't even watch CNN anymore. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what about this COVID thing? Oh, we're, we're going to die. We're all, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, what about all the riots and all of the chaos in the world and the governments that are supporting it? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Oh, if Biden gets elected. I will build my church, my kingdom, this eternal kingdom, this thing of which no nation shall prevail and nothing will ever come against it. Nations will rise and fall, dominions will come and go, but my kingdom is eternal and I will build my church and nothing will stand in its way. Amen? That's where we are today. That's what's going on today. Right in the middle of all of this stuff. We've got baptisms going on. We've got people that are joining in membership. We're going to eat from the king's table today, and we're going to know that Christ is building his church right in the midst of everything that's going on. Let me encourage you, moms and dads. When you're talking about COVID and masks and the government... Who's going to be elected and the rioting and the problems with our government? Take every one of those conversations and do not stop short, but lead them right into a Christological center in them. In other words, let your children hear conversations that go from mask and bad government to Jesus is on the throne and he is reigning and he is building his church. Go all the way with it. And that's what's going on here today. And that's exciting. Kelly, doesn't that crank your tractor? Amen. Well, the third thing that Matthew then expresses here is that Christ then gives the keys of the kingdom to ministers to bind and to loose. The keys of the kingdom represent the authority given to ministers of the church to bring souls into the kingdom or keep those out who do not belong. Governments, nations, and kingdoms, they're going to rise and fall. The United States of America, it's going to rise, it has risen, it will fall. That should not shake your faith in the least little bit. They will always have and always will be coming and going, but it is the eternal kingdom of God, the royal priesthood, the holy nation that will endure forever. And you are a citizen of that kingdom. Now, it's this last point I want to talk about the keys a little bit more, and I want to give some attention to that now. These things have been, this is a pretty, you know, um, explosive chapter here, depending on what branch of the church you've come from and what you may have 
understood. It's not my point to go through every detail. We are coming back around that when we get to our series back in, in Matthew. But the keys of the kingdom says something about the government of the kingdom. Now, Christ is head over the church. There is no question, there is no doubt about that. Christ is head over His church. The passage informs us, though, that He has delegated authority to authorized ministers here upon the earth to act in harmony with His will in the binding and loosing of souls in respect to His kingdom. Now, that's a strong statement. And we Protestants sometimes have a hard time digesting or even believing the statement that Jesus just made. Sometimes we are reacting and overreacting so much against some of the abuses of, of papacy and popery that we tend to just negate and have such a low view of the church that we almost negate it of all of its rightful authority and the authenticity that Christ gives in the keys of the kingdom and the administration of what He has called us to do. First of all, let's consider what Jesus means by the binding and loosing here. The word binding is the idea of tying something up, and the word loosing is the idea of somewhat untying it. So Jesus says that I'm giving to the church and to its ministers that authority to bind and to loose. The terms were used in Jewish rabbinic literature for what is or what is not permitted in the community. And the binding of loosing is the administrative authority that is exercised not as the owner, but as the steward. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says that ministers are stewards of the mysteries of Christ. And when we think about this kingdom and the government and what that all means in terms of ministers and membership and the sacraments and the word and baptism and censures and all of that, it all gets connected here with the keys. Now when Christ himself binds and looses a soul, it does have to do with sin. It has to do with the character of the kingdom. And that's why in Matthew chapter 5, we have the characteristics of the kingdom of God. And so we read what is true of the character of God's kingdom. For those who are in the kingdom of God and that the kingdom is working in them already, then they are poor in spirit. There's a humility. God gives grace to the humble. There's a mourning for sin because we acknowledge that we are sinners and the sin is that which keeps us from God and He doesn't like sin, He hates sin. It bothers us and so we repent and we mourn for this that still remains in this old man in us and therefore we are meek and we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we are merciful because we have seen how much mercy God has given to us and we are pure in heart and we want to make peace with all people and pursue holiness. And we have a willingness even to suffer for the cause of righteousness because our Lord did for us. In order to produce that kind of character, Christ had to deal with sin and overcome man's sinful nature. And so Christ calls and empowers ministers 
to administer the keys of the kingdom. On the one hand, we've already looked at an aspect of this when we were tracing some of the ministry of Peter in the beginning of the church movement as he is ministering in Jerusalem, and the next we see him ministering in Judea and Samaria, and then last we see him ministering to the Gentile world. And there is a part of the keys of the kingdom aspect where he is loosing in each of those three categories of peoples to the kingdom of God. And there's a second aspect of this binding and loosing and ministering the word and sacraments to the saints so that the word and the sacraments are maintained in their fundamental integrity by those to whom it is administered. Let me say that again. There is an aspect of binding and loosing in the ministry of the Word and sacrament to the saints so that the Word and the sacraments are maintained in their fundamental integrity by those and in those to whom they are ministered. And the point is this, when a church ceases to maintain the Word, the Word of God, and the sacraments in their fundamental integrity, that church ceases to be a church, or it never was a church to begin with. It's one of the ways that we look to discern if this is, is that a true church? Is that really a church? Are they maintaining the Word and sacraments in their fundamental integrity? Would be a question we should ask. Now, when they do not maintain the Word and Sacrament and the fundamental integrity, it happens when people themselves do not hold that in their hearts and do not embrace the Word and the Sacraments and their fundamental integrity in all that they entail internally. So the second aspect of the keys of the kingdom is to maintain the integrity of the kingdom itself. The integrity of righteousness, the integrity of holiness. Now what's important to note about the keys of the kingdom is a grammatical point here. And if you're reading this in the, the English, you might just skip right over it. But if you are reading this in the Greek, the Greek grammar is so awkward at this point, it cannot help but draw attention to it. And you cannot help but to wrestle with it and what does it mean. It will stop you in your tracks. It's a very unusual construction that is taking a verb in a future, perfect, passive verb. Future has something to do in the future. But perfect has to do with something in the past. And this is a future, perfect, passive verb. Literally, it would say, that which you loose will, future, have already been loosed in heaven. A perfect is a past tense, but it has continuing present results. Future has not yet come. But something in a perfect tense is something that has had the action of the verb has happened in the past, but it has continuing present results right up to where I am today. And that's why when you're thinking about this future, perfect, 
passive verb, that's a very awkward thing, and it, it draws us to have to wrestle through that a bit. The future perfect here really changes the direction of the action of the verb. With a simple future, it would be like this. Peter would take the initiative, and then heaven would follow. And that's the way that much of the Western, larger Roman Catholic Church has viewed that particular way. It would read something like this. Whatever you bind on earth, heaven will bind. Almost, it's like Peter takes the initiative and heaven gives its stamp of approval. But that's not how this is worded. It's a future perfect, and the phrase literally reads, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. So the impression is when Peter makes the decision, it will have already been made in heaven before Peter comes to that point making Peter not the initiator, but a faithful steward in what heaven has already accomplished with its lead. In other words, God makes the decisions, the ministers are to seek what He has already declared and square that up with their decisions. That's why a minister's role and part of the way he stewards is he has a ministry of word and prayer. We have to seek the mind of God, the will of God, through the word and through prayer, so that we might know what he has bound and loosed. Therefore, we would be a steward with how he desires. And that stewardship is administrative authority. Now, this morning, I want to just spend really the rest of the time fleshing it out in terms of application. Let's think about this application for a moment as it pertains to, uh, to baptism. Emily Joy, I'm going to use you as an example this morning because baptizing Emily Joy up here is a stewardship in the administration of the authority given to exercise the keys of the kingdom. Ministers have been authorized to baptize. In fact, almost in every denomination, every sector of the church, both east and west, in every Protestant aspect, except for only a few, the sacraments are administered only by ordained ministers because they are the ones who have been given the authorization to wield the keys of the kingdom. So ministers have been authorized to baptize. And I hope we can see how that's connected to the keys of the kingdom as we move our way through this. Baptism is a rite of admission into the church. When someone is baptized, they are then a member of the church. It is to be administered by an ordained minister, authorized with the keys of the kingdom. And the sacraments have to be tied to the government of the church, and therefore that is why they can only be administered by a rightful authority. The minister to ensure that this is to be done, squared up with what Christ has said should be done. Whatever he looses, that's what we have to lose. In Emily Joy's case, baptism is hers. 
because she's a child of believing parents, and therefore baptism is to be administered to her according to the Word of God. In this sense, it is her divine right, and we cannot withhold that from her. It's not my call. It's Christ's call. And I have to be a faithful steward. We must be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. Now that baptism is like Emily, jo- Emily Joy's birth certificate and her passport, all kind of rolled into one. It identifies and certifies her citizenship in God's kingdom. And that citizenship and her membership in God's kingdom is perpetual. Ministers of the gospel are responsible to oversee her baptism. And I'm going to use that. If you can think about this by way of just an earthly analogy in terms of her papers, if you will, her papers. We called you all in just a few minutes ago to remember your own baptism. You say, well, you know, I can't remember my baptism because I was a child and infant when I was baptized, and I can't recall that. That's not what we're saying when we say, remember your baptism. We are, it's the same thing as we remember the Lord's death. Well, I wasn't there at the cross. I didn't see him there. Um, we are to remember the Sabbath day. Well, you know, um, we are to not trust in swords and in chariots, and, but we are to remember the name of the Lord our God. Well, yes, I think I can remember what I was told in Sunday school class. That's not what we're talking about in remembrance. We are talking about acknowledging what God has done in the past, bringing that forward into our present experience and acknowledging that and living according to what everything that represents faithfully by the grace of God. That's what we're called to do. That is why baptism is a means of grace, not only at that time, but for the rest of your life. It is your papers. It's your birth certificate. It's your passport. It's what God has given to you to certify that you are in the kingdom. And so we baptize Emily Joy not to, not be, to make her a covenant child. No. We baptize Emily Joy because she was a covenant child. See? Those papers were due. Now, if you are found delinquent in faith or practice, then that would betray your baptism. It betrays all that that baptism entails. Then the ministers who oversee that baptism and the government of the church are going to have to address those issues. But as long as she remains faithful, she receives the benefits and the blessings of kingdom life identified by her birth certificate. Baptism is a sign and a seal. It's signs because it signifies something beyond what we see. We call it a sacrament because a sacrament is that which has a sign, but it also is connected to the reality, the grace, to which it symbolizes 
and through a sacramental union made efficacious by the work of the Holy Spirit in those who believe, that which is signified is really conveyed to those to whom it is due. That's a sacrament. It's not an empty sign. It's a powerful sign. And what happens if she grows up and meets a godly young man in Dominion Covenant Presbyterian Church way up in Omaha, Nebraska? And it's the Lord's will for her to marry him and move. I know. Don't think about it now. Well, that's when we had the example of the Flemings. If I can use the Flemings as an example here this morning. The Flemings didn't merely come to the congregation and say, we're Christians. We belong here. Give us the meal. This is what I'm going to do. Well, that's not quite how it works. Even if they say, like I've heard some people say, oh, we belong here. We're part of the universal church. We're part of the invisible church. And who are you to say anything about that? Well, were you baptized? Yes. By whom? By a minister? With what? With water. And where was that? See, it wasn't with an invisible minister, with an invisible water, with invisible kinds of things. And that's where we actually take the invisible church, invisible church, and put them in a way that is not biblical. Now, when the Flemings came and they expressed interest in membership here, they, they met with the ministers who were going to oversee their souls and who were responsible for their papers, their baptism. We hear their profession. We see if their creed is what Peter decreed. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Does that square up? We check their passports and we see if their papers are in order or if there's any fraudulent activity. See? They profess Christ. They've already been baptized in a church that maintains the Word and sacraments and their fundamental integrity. So receiving them here is a matter of checking their papers, like the border control. It's good to go. See? But the border control is that who sits on the border representing the government, checking to make sure that everything is in order for the proper government so that those who belong certainly come into all the privileges, but those who do not are kept out. That has to be exercised somehow by some place and by somebody, and that's what Christ was doing as He then gives the keys of the kingdom to ministers who are appointed for that very task. That's part of the government of Christ's church. So that's kind of what we're doing as ministers. We are administrative authority serving under Christ, checking the authenticity of the citizens of the kingdom's certifications. We're checking their baptisms. Now please don't misunderstand when I say checking their baptisms. That has nothing to do with just merely saying, well, what church did you belong to and were you baptized? You're good to go. 
No, checking their baptisms has everything to do with what I call you to remember your baptism and all that it entails. Christ is the one who binds and looses, but our ministry is to act into harmony with that prior action so that when we exercise the keys of the kingdom, we are merely in correspondence with heaven itself in what He, Christ, has already done. Now, once their baptism is approved, meaning in all that goes with it, their profession of faith is sound, they're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we acknowledge their membership in Christ's church and we agree to oversee their baptisms, their citizenship. Here at Heritage, I once said to another elder in the ministry, Ministers are called to oversee the baptisms of the members of our churches. He goes, that's nowhere biblical. I'm like, I believe it is. I believe that's the big problem that we're having today is we don't really understand what our role and responsibilities are in terms of administering the sacraments, how that ties into the oversight of the church, keeping the Word and the sacraments in their fundamental integrity in the hearts and lives of God's people and making sure God is glorified in the purity of His church and His people. It all goes back to the ministry of the Word and sacraments. It's interesting that you might note that we have in our liturgy, for those that come here, we do not practice a closed communion, but we do ask if they are not members of a church in, a, in good standing of a local church, they should not be partaking of the sacraments. If they are in a time of transition where those waters are somewhat gray and muddy, then we give them six months or so, and we give them a sense of benefit of the doubt and grace in these matters. But you have to tie the baptism to membership, to the invitation to the Lord's table, so that these things can be maintained even in their own hearts. And I do have recollection of a number of occasions where people have been with us beyond six months, beyond a year, and finally when we're talking about joining the church, it's a drawing line. No, I don't believe in church membership. And if that's their position, my position is, well, I'm sorry, I can no longer serve you communion. And usually they leave. You need to understand that connection in terms of the administration of the sacraments with the keys of the kingdom, with the oversight of the church, because I and the elders are to oversee the souls for whom we must give an account, and this has to do all in a package together. Now see, baptism is a symbol. It's like the birth certificate or the passport but it's not the piece of paper, really, that the border control is concerned about. It's all the information and all the implications that are represented in that passport, by that passport, that really is of interest to them. And there is a third aspect of administering the keys, and that pertains to the Lord's Supper. As I just mentioned, the fencing of the table, which you'll hear me do in just a few minutes, is to ensure... Only those who come to the table are those for whom it is due, and to guard the integrity 
of the sacrament itself. There was a time in church history up in the colonies that we called the halfway covenant. And that was a, a time that confused all of these particulars in terms of the sacraments and the membership and the keys of the kingdom. See, the sacraments are connected to the reality to which they symbolize. They always carry with them information, implication, doctrine, and grace. To despise your baptism is to despise your birthright, is to despise your um, citizenship in the kingdom, to despise the table by taking of it in an unworthy fashion is to despise everything that this table represents. And there is a character associated with the table that should be consistent with the meaning of your baptism. Those go together inseparably. You cannot come to the table unless you've first been baptized. It's very clear in the Passover when you could not come to the Passover unless you were first circumcised. We see that translated right over the New Testament. You cannot come to the Lord's Supper unless you have first been baptized. Baptism is the entry rite. That is your birth certificate, so to speak. The table is the citizen's privilege to sit with the King and to fellowship with our great Lord. Today in the news, it's not uncommon to see the protesters burning flags of the United States, not standing up for the national anthem. And what they're really doing is they're using the symbols of our nation to send a message of disdain toward the government on which they are a citizen. That's what's going on with the protest and burning flags and not standing up for the national anthem and doing this. It's, it's really a symbol it's a message carried about with their action and how they are viewing the symbols of our citizenship in a protest against the government. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry, Jay. We'll let you slide. <coughs> now, that comes about also in the church and with anything that is identifying that to which we are a citizen. So when you despise your baptism or the Lord's Supper by abusing it, you reveal your heart and your posture really toward what it represents behind it. Oftentimes people despise their baptism by despising those who oversee it. Thank you, brother. It's actually a reflection upon the authority. And it's not my authority, or Keith's authority, it's the head, it's Jesus' authority. I remember one time, I was going, <clears throat> I was counseling a couple, it's a long time ago, it wasn't this church, so you don't know them, nobody knows them. And this couple was coming to me for marital counseling, and... They both made a profession of faith. I baptized the, the wife, but the, the husband never would be baptized. Things just weren't progressing well in their marriage and weren't really progressing with my discipleship, though they would come every Tuesday to my house. 
And I was praying, I said, Lord, you've got to show me something here about how to help this man. He didn't come one Tuesday night. The wife showed up. He didn't come from work. And I said, "Um, so-and-so, why don't you go home? And I'm going to be about five minutes behind you. She left and she went home and I showed up about five minutes later. And the whole time for the 20-minute drive, I prayed, Lord, show me his heart. Show me his heart. Help me to know his heart. Show him his heart. I got there and began asking him about his baptism. And why would he not be baptized if he professes the Lord? So I went through the gospel all over again. He says, no, I don't want to. And as I began to unfold this, I said, well, if you are despising the Lord's symbol and you are not willing to follow Him in obedience in this manner, it really reveals something about your heart. He says, yeah, I don't want to. That's it. I got up and left that meeting after I prayed. On my way home, I get a phone call. Right then, he opened up to his wife that he had been having an illicit affair, that he wanted her out of the house. I mean, it just mushroomed in like five minutes after I confronted his heart on his baptism. By that time, when I called it for what it was, all of the disdain for not wanting to be baptized came forward in a heart pouring forward and really just exposing his entire life that he had been living that I could not put my finger on. The sacraments are those which will discern and draw a line in the sand. It is the kingdom. It's the government. And when we come to the table, when we think about our baptism, if we begin burning the flag and we don't stand up for the national anthem, I'm speaking about the king's anthem, I'm talking about the baptism and the Lord's Supper. It reveals something of our heart against God Himself. When you are insubordinate to your ecclesiastical authorities that God has certified to be over you, to administer the sacraments faithfully, to be faithful with the stewardship of the mysteries, it makes a statement about your citizenship and about your perspective of Christ Himself. That is why it's so important. That's why the Scriptures say, obey those who rule over you because they are ones who give an account for your souls. And let them do it easily. So the keys of the kingdom, this church authority and the sacraments all go together. But There's one fourth aspect that I'll quickly cover, and that is the ministry administering of the keys of the kingdom when it comes about when a baptized member is characteristically unfaithful with his or her life to the creed of the kingdom or to a life that lives contrary to it. Then it's the responsibility of ministers who have been given the administrative authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom in the binding principle. And what that means is that the authority can be exercised that would then bar the person from the table and even out of the church. 
And Paul refers to that particular as turning one back out of the kingdom of light into the domain of Satan. And that's a place none of us want to be. In effect, the person's baptism is suspended. His citizenship is no longer certified. They are no longer acknowledged as a citizen of the kingdom. They lose their benefits and their privileges and the blessings of the kingdom. If one despises the place, the realm of his citizenship, then they should no longer enjoy its privileges. That's kind of the the principle here. But perhaps they were never a true citizen in heart and spirit, and therefore they don't belong here. Or if they truly do belong here, they will repent and return and embrace their baptism, their citizenship, and all that it entails. And by the way, when one does that, he doesn't have to be rebaptized. His baptism papers are checked out again. Okay, repentance, meet for repentance. Good to go. But that has to be overseen. Keys have to be exercised. Authority has to be made known. We see a couple of places where Paul did this in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5, he does this when he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together along with my Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver this person in your midst over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's a disciplinary effect that if truly the spirit is working in him, it will bring him back to the fold repentantly. He also says in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, when he's talking to young Timothy, he says, now some having rejected the faith, have suffered shipwreck. And he names two people by name, of whom are Hamanaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered over to Satan, that they may, not, they may learn not to blaspheme. See, the primary concern is God's name and God's glory, and the secondary concern is the sinner's heart. And I know a lot of times we get that backwards. Christ is building His church. He's building His kingdom and the keys are given to maintain the Word and the sacraments and their fundamental integrity in the lives of those to whom it is due. And so God's people will be blessed. It is the purpose of God to save sinners, but it is the greater purpose for Him to build His kingdom by saving sinners, overcoming all evil, and to characterize this world with righteousness and holiness. So Christ desires the best for His people. He gives the government of the church to maintain its character, and what a joy it is to see him build his church in the midst of everything that's going on. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ is the king. His kingdom has come to the earth. We are not waiting for it to come. It has come. He has bound the strong man. He has defeated the foes and all of the enemies of darkness. And He is reigning here today. And He is up on the throne. And He is the head of the church. And He will have His way in glorifying Himself through His people and showing that His kingdom is all-powerful over every virus, over every weather, over all of the rioting, over all corrupt governments, Jesus is King and He is building His church. Amen?
Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for this positive, encouraging message that Christ is up on the throne. He is reigning and His dominion is everlasting. And that dominion is one of light. It's one of love. It is one of righteousness and holiness. It is one of pursuing peace with all people. It is one of salvation and redemption and cleansing of sins. It is one that we can continue to repent and know the forgiveness of Christ. It is one that we will inherit the earth. It is one in which Christ is working here among us this day. How thankful we are for the encouragement, the promise, the hope of glory, which is Christ here among us, in us this day. And as we come to His table, may we so come to taste and feast upon the wonderful blessings of everything that it symbolizes and entails. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.